And if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, as we continue our journey through this great gospel. We will be starting today in verse 12 and reading through verse 24. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us now go before God one last time as we ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this word that you have given to us recorded here in Luke. I do pray that you would help me to preach it accurately and well and help us to listen and apply to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. It is always a wonderful thing to receive an invitation to a celebration. And it's a privilege to send one as well. To invite other people to share a meal with you is a profound statement of intimacy and friendship. It was important in the ancient Middle East, and it remains important even in the southern United States. The guest list in our parties, though, very often contains the names of people that we have known for a long time, or who run in our social circles, or who very often just look like us. The question that this passage raises for us is, would the guest list that we hold 
ever surprise the world? Would anybody ever look at the people that we would have into our home and ask, why are you inviting that person? This is the challenge that Jesus raises for the Pharisees at this dinner in Luke chapter 14. If you remember from last week, Jesus has been invited to the ruler of the Pharisees' house for an after-Sabbath service meal. And they had hoped that they could bring him in here to trap him. But instead of trapping him, Jesus trapped them using their own logic in the scripture against them. And when they were defeated, the rest of the guests tried to jockey for position for the best seats in the house. And Jesus had something to say about all of that, had a word for the guests. But as we turn to our passage today... Jesus has something to say to the host of the meal today. No one is going to escape a dinner with Jesus unscathed. And today, we're going to see what Jesus is telling the host, and by extension, us, to do and why. We're going to have our typical two points today. I do apologize. We don't have the outline for you in the bulletin. I became terribly ill the middle part of this week and was not able to have it finished in time for you. Uh, but I will, I will repeat our couple of points here that we're going to look at in our passage. The first is that Christ calls us to help those who can't help us. Christ calls us to help those who can't help us. And this is because, the second point, this is not just a bare command, it's not just a bare imperative, we have a reason for why. And that second point is because Christ helped us who can't help him. It's our second point, Christ helped us who can't help him. So again, we're going to start with our first point, which is Christ calls us to help those who can't help us, looking in our first couple of verses. Jesus lays out his ideal vision for a guest list. And it doesn't include your typical list of the popular, rich, or even familiar people in their lives. But instead, this includes the unpopular, the poor, and strangers. Now, it should be said at the front end that Jesus is not condemning having dinner with your family or your friends. This is something that Jesus himself does. He has and spends personal, isolated time with his disciples, so Jesus is not condemning us to have a meal with the people that we know. Indeed, we are supposed to have that fellowship with one another. It's important to nurture those long-term relationships and friendships because that's how we sharpen one another. Having that close relationship with someone else gives those other people permission to speak into our lives and to show us how we can better honor Jesus. So that's important. But what Jesus is saying here is that we shouldn't make that our only habit. Do we only invite people into our home that we know and love and are familiar with? Or know and love people that can provide something for us in return? Again, having someone over or doing something for someone that can return the favor for you is not wrong per se, but it's not the fullest expression of hospitality. It's not the perfect reflection of what God has done in his hospitality to us. 
Instead, as one scholar put it, the best hospitality is that which is given, not exchanged. Given, not exchanged. I had a friend in seminary who was like this, was always giving of himself. Walking with him to the library from our classrooms was always an experience because there were always people that were greeting him along the way that he had made the time to talk to. And most of the time, they were the people that no one else was talking to. We had an opportunity once in our preaching lab when it was time for us to practice preaching. We were uh, allowed to bring other people that they may share in our misery of our first few sermons to listen to us as we would croon out the sermons that we had hastily put together. Now, most of us, we would invite our wives or girlfriends or members of our family with us to be here in the preaching lab. But the person that my friend invited was the library janitor. And she came. She was someone that most people did not even notice, much less ignore. But he was someone that always had something to say to her. And she was moved to come and hear him preach in the preaching lab. I think that's the ideal picture of what this hospitality is supposed to look like. My friend had put forth this effort, and I would give his name, but he's so humble he would not allow me to do so. But he was putting forth the effort to reach out to people. He was a seminary student. This was Beeson. We were very busy. But he always took the time to reach out to those people that no one else would. And that bore results. That was someone who was willing to come and take time out of her day, who was very busy, to come and hear the word of God preached. That's what I think Jesus is doing for us here. Now, while this does not give any advantages to my friend, this sort of radical hospitality most of the time, when we are reaching out to other people and giving without the ability to receive, we may think that this is something that is all of loss, but it isn't. This is something that Jesus guarantees for us here in verse 14, that we will be blessed Because they cannot repay you. So why are we blessed? It's not because they cannot repay you. It's so that God can. That's what he promises here in verse 14. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That is an offer that no popular, rich, or familiar person could ever offer and match. To be blessed by God himself for welcoming the unwelcomed. For friending the friendless. This is a marvelous promise. And as one of my favorite commentators, Philip Ryken, puts it, he says, What an encouragement this promise is to Christians who give their lives in sacrificial service, even if their service does not receive any recognition from the people they serve. God will not let their work go unrewarded, they will receive full recompense. At the resurrection. That is a glorious promise. So this should lead us to open up our guest lists with abandon. 
Obviously, we have issues of wisdom that we have to keep in mind. We have to make sure that our, that our help is actually helping and those sorts of things. I get that. But in our general, in our day-to-day lives, we need to use our dinner tables, our homes, our time as opportunities to reach other people and introduce them to Jesus. I think having people over for a meal in table fellowship means more now than it ever has. And we have to be really careful not to let the pandemic rip that from us. We've had to be careful. We still do in some ways. But we're getting too close to the point where we need to be bringing others back into our homes because that's going to mean so much. Indeed, the effect of this hospitality can be incredible. One pastor had set out to do just this back in the late 90s. There was a local lesbian professor who would write in the paper about Christianity, criticizing it and its response. And he decided, instead of writing an angry letter to her like most others did, he invited her over for dinner and did this repeatedly with her and her lesbian partner. And this was in the late 90s when this was far from popular to do today, like it is now. This was something of, well, I can't believe you would invite that person over to your table. But this is what he did. Now, he was not shy with what God had said. He did not hide the truth of what was there in the scriptures, that, that her lifestyle was a sinful one. But he did so in the context of welcoming her into, her, into his home. And being a loving presence across the table from her. And indeed, she was converted and is now the author of a book. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. A book that perhaps you have read. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield, if you haven't put together her testimony already. This is how she was converted. That's the point of our hospitality. It's not just to have people over to share a meal. It's to have people over to share Christ and to share the wonders of his love. So why should we do this? Why should we be uniquely motivated to open up our tables to our neighbors and our strangers in our lives? It's not just another command or because God said so, although that would be enough. This comes to our second point, the reality that underlies our command, which is that Christ has helped us who can't help him. Let's look here in this parable that starts in verse 15. A man is trying to turn the conversation, perhaps rescue the awkward silence that has Come from Jesus criticizing the host of the dinner. In verse 15, it says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Probably, this man in verse 15 is assuming that he is going to be one of the blessed to be at the table. But Jesus has a parable because not everyone who thinks that they're going to be at the banquet is going to be at the banquet. And this is what Jesus says in verse 16. Notice how that word, this starts 
but, Jesus said to him, and begins this parable. It says, a man is giving a great banquet. He's invited many people, and it's time for people to come in. He sends out his servants to go and call people to this dinner, and one by one, they refuse. And then the master sends out the servants again to invite the poor and the forgotten to be at, these, at this dinner, even those ruffians walking on the highways in different parts of the country. The party is going to go on with or without the original guest list. Now, there's a lot happening here. There's a lot of social conventions that we need to break down to understand what's going on here. When ancient invitations were sent out, because we didn't have email and text messaging at that time, there would be servants and friends that would go out and a day or two before the feast was supposed to happen to ask and invite those that were to come, similar to our RSVPs. Now, this was done so this way the host would know how many animals he had to kill in order to provide the meat for his celebration. So if you were to accept this first invitation, it was a hard commitment to go. You were expected to do so. And in fact, if you didn't, it was considered an insult. And in some areas of the country, this was considered a declaration of war. It was a very serious thing to flake out on an invitation like that. So here, when this has happened, clearly many people have been invited. This is the first invitation has gone out, and now the meal's ready. Servants going out to send the second notification saying, it's time for you to come. Banquets took a long time to put together. You needed that warning. But now all of these people begin to have their excuses. It's not like they didn't know that the party was coming. But let's see, are these excuses that they're giving worthwhile? Maybe it was something that they couldn't see. But that's not what we see. Here begins in verse 18. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. According to scholars, land deals could take years to work out. In the bill of sale, almost every foot of that piece of property was described in detail. So the idea that someone would have bought a field and would have no idea of the land that he has bought is quite unlikely. But even if it was, even if this man had somehow managed to buy a field without ever having seen it, the field is going to be there tomorrow. It's not going away. He can go to this meal. So the only conclusion that we have to come to is that he simply doesn't want to go. What about our next guy here in verse 19? And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. To buy this many oxen would indicate a vast amount of wealth for someone. This, you would buy this many oxen if you had 240 acres of property to plow. This was a very wealthy person. But also the idea that you would buy five oxen without checking to make sure that they would pull their plow together well without seeing if they are healthy. There's no pictures that they can send you over the internet. The idea that the, for him to do this, it would be like us saying that we have bought five used cars. We have no idea what make or model they are or whether or not they even run. It would be a ridiculous excuse to say that this was the reason. 
But again, even if he had, the oxen will still be there tomorrow. There's no reason why he cannot come to the feast today. This is quite clearly a priority choice that these men are making, that they do not see this meal as important to come to. There are other things, matters of finance, matters of farming, that are far more important. But what about this third one here? This is another, and I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. This man thinks that he has an excuse because he is twisting one passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 24. A recently married man was excused for the first year of his marriage from military service and other public duties in the realm of the military. But he is not excused from all banquets. <laughs> there is no reason why he cannot come to this banquet. There's no reason why he can't bring his wife with him. But he just flatly refuses. He doesn't even ask like the first two to please be excused. He just rebuffs the servant and carries on. Of course, all of these excuses are not real excuses. It's just the first thing that can come to mind that sounds vaguely compelling. And that's what they do here. And unfortunately, that's what we do here too. When we are called to do something that we just don't want to do, you know that feeling. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of something and you know what you have to do. And you will, and it is unbelievable for those of us who think we aren't creative. It's unbelievable how creative we can be in coming up with excuses to avoid this. We'll even find scriptures to try to justify what it is that we're saying in order to avoid what God has called us to do. And our excuses are no less ridiculous, no less absurd in the light of eternity. I remember coming across a testimony of one young man who had left the church at 19 and he said, I had pretended that the reason why I had left was for high-minded philosophical reasons. But the real reason, he said, to put it in his own words, was so that I could drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. At least he was honest. But what a horrible choice. To give up the bliss of knowing God for drink. That's such a sad thing. Or those of us who will give up following after God because it would take up a couple extra days in our week. Or would demand more of our time. Or would ask us to give up certain forms of entertainment for ourselves. Or to carve out a little more out of our budgets. None of our excuses are any better when it comes to following after God. These aren't real excuses. But if we are not going to follow after God, if we are, especially if we haven't come to Jesus yet and say it's just like, well, I just don't feel like doing this right now. I don't want this commitment. The party is still going to go on. 
Christ's kingdom is still coming, whether or not we are on board with it. And this is what we illustrate here in this parable when we come into verse 21. The servant has come back and reported all of these terrible excuses to his master. And the master of the house becomes angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. He uses this word compel because in these ancient cultures to be invited to a dinner by a stranger, especially if the invitee was of a lower social class, it was expected to refuse the invitation because surely this host can't be serious. He can't really be that gracious that he would invite me to his dinner. Who would have that much grace indeed? That's what we see in verse 24 as to who this is all being talked about. All of a sudden, the master, the servant, or the the master, he, and all the third-person pronouns, it all changes in the last verse and becomes first-person pronouns. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. I believe this is talking about Jesus, the master of the hope, the master of the feast. When we have that piece, I think the rest of it becomes quite obvious as to what this parable is. That this reflects the gracious nature of God himself and the history that he's had with his people. That he has given in the Old Testament that first invitation. That there is going to be a time coming in which all the nations will be gathered together. When he looked to Israel and said, I want you to be a priest for the nations. Draw the nations to me first invitation that there was a kingdom that was coming was given to these people. But now the second invitation has come in Christ. The kingdom is at hand. The feast is prepared. Come and enjoy. And what do we find? The Pharisees give their excuses, twisting the scriptures as they do so. Oh, we're not going to follow this, Jesus. He breaks our interpretation of the Sabbath even though they all well know that he doesn't. As he demonstrated quite ably last week in the early part of chapter 14. And verse 24 is very sobering, that none of those men who are invited shall taste of my banquet. They had their opportunity, but it was gone. In Luke, this is the last time we see Jesus dine with the Pharisees. This was their last time opportunity and they refused this is a very sobering reality for us us who have heard this first invitation second invitation many many times and if there's anything that this year has taught us is that we have no idea when our last opportunity might be So if you are here today, 
you've not responded to this invitation, then I urge you to answer it. We can't come to God without an invitation. But we can, but it appears that there, that there is a responsibility to accept that, to respond to this invitation. We would have no one to blame but ourselves that this is the case. So I would urge you that whatever excuse that you have to keep from following after God, it's not a worthy excuse. It just isn't. <laughs> There's nothing that could excuse us from the kingdom that would be more worth our attention and worship than Christ. There's no boat. There's no house. There's no kid. Nothing. It is greater than Christ. We see that God used the refusal of this invitation when the Jews had, for the most part, had refused. This was the catalyst that sent the disciples out into the world of the Gentiles. This was always the plan to reach the nations. But the Lord was able to use even that rejection to bring others in. So we urge you to respond. But if you have already responded to that call, which is my hope that each and every one of you here today and are watching online, that that would be true. If you have, then I would ask you to join the work of bringing others in. To be inviting those on the outside to be a part of this marvelous dinner. And this motivation is because we have been called into this thing. This has been an act of grace from beginning to end that we could be at this dinner. And we have to keep that motivation in our minds. Any other motivation is either going to be some form of guilt or pride that is not sustainable. We say, it's like, well, I'm going to invite other people and less fortunate into my house because, well, because I have so much and I feel like I should share it. That is not sustainable. Or we say, yes, I have gathered quite a bit for myself and now I think I would like to share that with some other folks of mine. That's not going to be a sustainable motivation either. Because eventually that's going to start requiring more of you than guilt or pride can sustain. And that's what's wrong with our approach to the poor today in our own country. We try to motivate in our secular world by trying to make other people feel guilty about what they have. Or to try to make some sort of reward out of it in this life for reaching out to the poor. And that's never going to work. Not long term. Instead, if we come from the idea, the truth, that Christ has invited us who were poor, blind, and lame, strangers, into his dinner, and then promises that there is no amount that we can give that he cannot repay at the resurrection, that and that alone is going to give us the strength to give and to give and to invite others in. 
So if we were to summarize, what's our takeaway from today? Our takeaway is that you have been granted an incredible privilege, brothers and sisters. As Charles Spurgeon once said, I can hardly believe that I am really in a palace dining with a king. Long live the king, say I, and blessings on the prince and his bride. We have an invitation to that palace. So be sure that you have accepted that invitation through repentance and faith. Don't leave this building unless you are sure of that. And if you have questions, please see me. Nothing would thrill me more, really. Nothing would thrill me more than to lead you through that. And then once we have come to faith, once we've realized that we have been given this gracious invitation, then go and look for those that it would require effort and accommodation to bring in. It might not look like what we see in this list today as those with these disabilities like this have been granted a lot of social mobility and ease in our world. But there are those that are still ignored today that need to be looked after. There is a, wonder, there is a huge need to look after children, even in our county. I was looking, I had, looking at an email yesterday. There are 72 children in our foster care system in Talladega County and there are 34 people that are licensed to be foster parents. Some are able to take on more than one, but a lot of them are inactive. And these are children from zero to teenagers. These are folks that need our help. Children from hard backgrounds are really difficult to be hospitable with. It's a reality. It's difficult, but it's worth it. Because that was us. When we look into people who are less fortunate than we are in some sort of financial status or parental upbringing, we should look and see ourselves. And see that the way that we can minister to these people is a small picture of how Christ has ministered to us. We should count it a privilege and counting it all joy to endure the trials necessary to bring these in. It's not about absolving us of guilt. It's not about getting points on social media by posting about it. But it's simply to be about the service of God compelling others into the amazing grace that you and I have been brought into. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the way that you have invited us to your feast. We did not deserve to have a seat at the table. We don't deserve the chair that we can sit in in heavenly places. But it has been purchased for us. You have given up your seat so that we could be at this table. Help us never to forget that and to lose track of that. Help us instead to be motivated by this and to go out with joy to bring others into our homes that they might see you. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.